Good morning. How is everyone today? Good. I'm excited to go through, uh, continue through the Minor Prophets. Uh, so last week we finished up Hosea, so naturally today we will be moving into the book of Joel. So as you guys uh, get there, Joel chapter 1, as you can see, we'll be going, covering a lot of text today, going through uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Um, and because we're covering a lot of text, we'll be kind of, I'll be chunk here, chunk there. Um, so just be prepared between Joel 1 and Joel 2 to be flipping back and forth, because that's where we will be. Um, when I had the opportunity to preach this morning, I was excited to continue through the Minor Prophets. For those of you who don't know, uh, our college students are very familiar with the Minor Prophets. We've spent almost the last eight months in them in uh, Sunday school, so our grow groups. So we've been working through the Minor Prophets for a while. So for us, um, <clears throat> Joel was about six months ago, but uh, we've been working through it, and, and I'm excited to get to, to preach on it, to speak on it up here today. Uh, and the way that we're going to do it is a little bit different. Um, it's the way that we tend to look at things um, when we read through them in the college group and, and up here and, and uh, during our Thrive Nights on Thursday nights. And it's through this thing that's called the interpretive journey. Uh, and I, I guess, learned about this for the first time about a year ago through a book written by Duval and Hayes called Grasping God's Word. And this interpretive journey is like a five-step process to reading understanding and, and studying Scripture. So over the past year, uh, utilizing the interpretive journey, uh, I found it to be very helpful um, in reading and understanding the Word, uh, especially the Old Testament, even more so specifically the, the Minor Prophets. So we're going to be looking through the interpretive journey today as we go through the first chapter and a half of the book of Joel. So I'm going to give you a quick um, some quick notes on what that interpretive journey is. And I apologize, it's going to be a little bit of a, a lengthy intro, but if you just hang with me. Uh, the five things we're going to do looking at this interpretive journey, number one is we're going to do this thing that they call grasp the text in their town. So we're going to look at this book of Joel, and we're going to look at what it meant to its original audience. Right, because remember, God is not saying something to you he didn't first say to his original audience. So in order to get a grasp of what we're going over today, the first thing we need to know and understand is what it would have meant to the original audience. From there, we're going to measure the width of the river, is what they call it. We know the original audience. Now, how far is the river separating us? What, is, what do the original audience have that we don't? What do we have that they don't? Maybe they're under the old covenant, we're under a new covenant. Um, for example, here in Joel, we'll be talking about Israel being attacked by a swarm of locusts, right? That's not the season we're in right now. I, I doubt um, any of us are really going through a, a devastation of everything we have because of some locusts. So we've got to figure out how far apart are we from them. Once we get there, we can do this thing where we, it's called cross the principalizing bridge, so what we're going to do is we're going to look for theological principles that are present here in Joel that are um, outside, that exist outside of time, right? It's a theological principle for them. It's the same thing to us now. So what, 
is being said theologically by God, about God, about his character, about the coming of Jesus, any of these theological points that are being made in Joel, what are these theological points that are that stand the test of time? Once we do that, we're going to consult the biblical map. We're going to say, okay, I know this theological principle. Um, now I've got to find out how it fits with the rest of the Bible. Real quick, I'm going to stop on this point for a minute. That's important. It is very important. We get so lost today because we have people who get to a point where they say, oh, this is what this part of the Bible says to me. It doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. It doesn't, it doesn't point people to Jesus. It doesn't say anything about the character of God, but this is what it means to me. As a matter of fact, it contradicts the rest of what Scripture said, but because it's the way I read it, then it's the way I can interpret it and I can share it. But that's not true. If you hold up a theological principle from the Bible and it does not match and fit with the rest of the Bible, you're wrong. You've missed. So that's something important that we have got to do. And then finally, step number five that we so often like to look at as step number one is finally then we can grasp the text in our town. Finally, then, we can get to the point where we say, okay, now, how do I apply this? So often, we do the thing where we read the Bible. We say, okay, what's this mean to me? Got it, check. Don't, don't consult the biblical map and have skipped every other part, but we, we think we've got some application from it, so we're good to go because all that mattered is what we could read into it. But that's the fifth part we'll get to. I'm going to condense it down into three, so we're going to combine one and two, so we're going to grasp the text and measure the width of the river in one. Um, and then we're going to combine three and four as well. So we're going to cross the principalizing bridge and consult the biblical map in one. So essentially, we're looking at the first half of the book of Joel, the first about chapter and a half, with these three questions in mind. First, what does this text mean to its original, in its original context, to its original audience, and how far removed are we from that audience? Number two, what theological principles are present that span the test of time and remain true for us today? And do they fall in line with the rest of Scripture? And number three, finally, how can we apply these biblical truths to our lives today? So it's a little bit of a lengthy intro, but it, I want us to all get on the same page for, for diving in and, and wading through the book of Joel. So then we're going to start with number one, start at the beginning, grasp the text in their town. Some things about Joel. No specific time frame is given in Joel. So there's not a mention of a specific king, or there's not a mention of coming off of a specific thing that we can, that we can point to and say, oh yeah, because we know that, um, then we can, we can set this in a, in a time frame. And as a matter of fact, there are there's quite a wide range of when people think Joel is, is written. There are some people who believe it's in the 800-ish B.C., um, and there are some people who believe it's even as late as the 500-ish B.C., but this is what matters is that the time frame doesn't matter because the theological principles that are present here are, extend throughout time. Is that me? Is that, am I just moving too much? Is it my beard? All right. So there's no specific time frame given, and also something that separates it from the rest of the minor prophets uh, is that he never accuses Israel of a specific sin. He doesn't say, you are being punished or this is happening because you've done this specific thing. 
right? He speaks to them and allows that sin to be understood. It separates from Hosea because while Hosea is deeply personal, it talks about a relationship um, with, with, with Gomer. Uh, Joel is deeply national, right? It's talking on a national level after a national disaster with the locusts that we'll talk about. He writes to let the people know that there was this locust storm that has destroyed the crops, and that is an act of God's divine judgment. His main focus here is to sound the alarm and call for repentance because the day of the Lord is coming. And a cool thing that I, I, I really enjoy here is that and he preaches this mirrored message in the first two chapters um, that centralize around the coming day of the Lord. So we get a mirror of chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we'll talk about as we dive into it. So now that we know a little bit of background about the, the, the people that we're talking about, how would they have heard Joel's message? Well, let's start in Joel chapter 1 in the first five verses. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. So the first thing that these people hearing Joel would have heard was, wake up, sound the alarm. We, hear, we have words here like, hear this, listen, wake up. It's essentially a call. You see it to the drunkards here, but we see it to the farmers and the priests later. It's a call to pay careful attention to the judgment that your disobedience has brought. Hear this alarm. Understand that what has come has come in response to your disobedience. Hear this. Listen. Wake up. Another thing we see in that the, the way Joel, the people in this context would have responded to it, would have been in verse 13 and 14, upcoming, where it says, put on sackcloth, this is still in chapter 1, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Hear the alarm and repent. Right? Sound the alarm and repent. Hear these people who have just experienced a catastrophe, a disaster. Their crops are gone. They have nothing. They have nothing to drink, to eat, to offer as sacrifices. They've lost it all. And here's Joel saying, hey, all of this that has happened is the worst you've ever seen. Right? He makes it, that this, nothing ever has come before this, and it's something that you will tell your, your kids and their kids and, and their kids about. This is huge. Let it wake you up. Understand why it has come. Address your sins that has brought this judgment and repent. That's what these people here are hearing. And then he goes on, if we just go one more verse in verse 15, he says, Alas, that day, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. 
right? So here they are hearing that this disaster, the worst one that has ever happened, one that they will tell their kids forever, that, that their ancestors have not lived through, and they will be the ancestors that everyone talks about. Hey, do you remember great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather telling us about that time all the locusts came in and, and ate everything? All of that, that was a disaster. It's horrible. But the day of the Lord is coming. A note I have here says, a time, the day of the Lord is a time of either national blessing for those who followed God or destruction for those who set themselves against his will. Right? Sound the alarm. This was horrible. Repent because something worse is on the horizon. Understand. Catch this. Get why it happened. Right? This has got to be a response of, I, I, you've, you've got to come right. You have to understand why this has been set up, understand your call to repent, and then know that something else is coming. A time of either national blessing for those who follow God or destruction for those who set themselves against his will. This is Joel saying, hey, you're in the second half of that right now. You're in the half that has set themselves against his will. You've caught a glimpse of it with these locusts. And the day of the Lord is coming. So that's what these people would have heard from this. But then something awesome. So we see from here a call to sound the alarm and and repent in chapter 1 in light of these locust swarms. But then we get the mention of the day of the Lord And then in chapter 2, we get this exact mirror of a call of alarm and repent in light of the day of the Lord. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, we hear him say, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord that is coming. It is close at hand. If you go into verse 2 as well, it says, A day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor will ever be in ages to come. So while in verse 1 we get, hey, pay careful attention to your judgment that that your disobedience has brought, in chapter 2 we get that same idea of sounding the alarm, but as opposed to pay careful attention to what you're doing that has caused this, In chapter 2, it's pay careful attention to what is to come, right? Pay careful attention and understand, sound the alarm. All of these things happen, but all of these things are on the horizon. So we see this mirror. We see the sound the alarm, and then we see repentance as well. Starting in chapter, or verse 12, I'm sorry. It says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. 
Let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn. A byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? So in chapter 1, we see a call, a sounding of the alarm and a call to repent. We see in chapter 1, when he calls for repentance, he says, Fast, assemble, gather, cry out. In chapter 2, he says, Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. And then repeats what he says in chapter 1. Those same lines of uh, fasting, assembling, gathering, and crying out. And then he, he says, who knows? He might turn and relent. Right, so here we, we have this, this view of, hey, here were the locusts. Recognize, sound the alarm, recognize what's happening, and repent. And then we have the centralized, the day of the Lord is coming. And a second, a mirrored, therefore, sound the alarm and repent. If you were to summarize what's happening here when we're grasping the text in their town and understanding how they would have, have heard this, I think you could say it's something like this. That Joel brings a message from the Lord that the recent swarm of locusts came as a judgment. Joel urges the people to heed the alarm and repent because the day of the Lord is coming, which is going to be much worse. Now, I know we've not gotten to the grasp of text in your town yet, and we'll get there in a, in a minute, but something that I want to make sure that we are all on the same page with is just because you have something bad going on in your life does not mean that, oh, oh yeah, that's the Lord's judgment towards me. I've got to figure it out. I mean, look at Job. Job went through so many things. All right, we're reading Job, right? Or we've, yeah, we're in Job, and we've, um, in our year-long reading plan, and we see how he is righteous, right? And he is to the point where God is saying, have you considered my servant Job? And he's going through all of these things. So what we can't look at today is, is go, hey, I'm going through something bad, therefore I must be doing something wrong. However, what we do need to recognize is that God can use any circumstance to bring you back to him. In this case, he uses the locusts and uses Joel to say, hey, recognize this and look forward because this is coming. He can use any circumstance, and in this case, is this circumstance. He can sound the alarm in any way, and we'll get there in just a minute. So now that we've, we've gone through that and we, we have an idea of these people, the next thing we've got to do is we've got to cross the principalizing bridge. We've got to look at what are the theological principles present here that transcend time, that are true to them and are true to us. And I think there are three in play here. The first one being God's justice. The second one being the fear of the Lord. And the third one being repentance. The locust came as judgment to these drunkards, these farmers, these priests that we get um, note of throughout chapter 1. They came against those who were seeking their own will, who were only joyful in their produce. For example, if we look at the farmers in chapter or verse 11 in chapter 1, it says, Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate and the palm and the apple tree and the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Right? 
It's come to destroy these things that these, these people were finding their joy, finding their peace in, in this abundance of crops, in this blessings of, of, of crops. And now that it's gone, they're lost. His judgment came against those who sought only to fulfill their selfish, sinful desires, who only found joy when God blessed their crops in the sense of the farmers, and then against the priests who were not leading their people. God's judgment, God's justice can come in, in many ways. In Joel, it came in the form of these locusts who took everything away. It destroyed the crops. It destroyed the food. It destroyed their drink. It destroyed types of offering for them. It took it all away and said, now on a clean slate, recognize where you have fallen. Recognize where you have struggled. Recognize where you have taken advantage of your Lord. God's justice can come in many ways. The next thing we can see is the importance of the fear of the Lord. Here, in Joel, God's justice comes in a way that can only be met with sheer horror of the situation and a response of repentance. God's power should be met with respect and reverence instead of being taken advantage of. And that's so often what we do. We see it in the Bible where you have questions like, so then should, should we sin more so that grace may abound, right? Hey, if I'm going to get all this grace, then why can't I just go in and sin and do all of these things? We, we have these blessings. We've been blessed with so many things, and, and we see how we can capitalize on them. And there is no fear of the Lord. There is no respect. There is no reverence for his power. And here in Joel, he's giving these people just a glimpse. Just a glimpse. Of, hey, my power is to be respected and revered. As, as Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then another thing is Repentance. We've got to understand, and, and Joel mentions it twice in two chapters, sin against God should always be met with repentance. It's not enough to hear the alarm and go, oh yeah, I recognize that I'm doing this thing wrong. Hopefully I'll do better next time. Right? It's not enough to, go to, to recognize an alarm in your life and go, man, I messed up. Oh well. Man, I ne- messed up. Uh, hopefully, hopefully next time. Joel makes statements. He pleads for a type of repentance that is more than show, but from the heart. He says, tear your hearts, not just your clothes. It's not about how big of a show you can make of repentance, but how much you, I mean, tear your hearts, rend your hearts, not just your garments. It's coming to the Lord in true repentance. He talks about uh, in chapter 1 and 2, he talks about them. He calls them to fast, to assemble, to cry out to the Lord. Your repentance should mean something. I know every one of you, if you have a sibling at least, we'll go there. And I see it in Cooper all the time. Every one of you have done something, um, hurt someone, said something to someone that hurt their feelings, whatever. Let's just talk about siblings. For example, uh, Cooper yesterday busted Kate's lip 
bad. I mean bad. And it was because he was jumping from the couch to the coffee table, <laughs> which he's not supposed to do. Um, so he's on the couch, and he jumps off the couch from the coffee table. At the time, Kate runs underneath him, and Cooper's legs catch Kate and hit her into the coffee table and just bust her lip. And she runs in there with us, and she's just pouring blood out of the mouth. And Cooper runs. Well, actually, Cooper gets there before Kate does. And she, he runs back there, and Cooper goes, Kate got hurt. <laughs> Finally getting to the point, well, what happened? Well, she ran under me. No, Cooper, you were doing something you weren't supposed to do, right? So then finally we get to the point where we're like, Cooper, tell your sister, apologize. And he goes, sorry. But that's what we do, right? It's, it's what we do. We go, oh, man, I got caught. Sorry, I guess. Oh, man, I'm in, this, I'm in this rough situation, and I've been caught, and I'm facing repercussions for what I have done. Sorry. Right, but Joel is calling for a type of repentance that's from the heart, that's not outward, that's not done because we've been caught, but is done because of the importance of repentance. If we're to look at these three theological principles and, and cross this principalizing bridge, I think we can look at it like this. God remains just. The fear of the Lord remains the beginning of knowledge. And sin against God should always be met with repentance. Now, finally, we can get to the part that we all love to start with, and that's grasping the text in our town. How can we apply these theological principles? I think there are two ways. And youth, most of you have heard a lot of this. It just so happens, and when I say that, I, I, it really was not planned at all. But this that I taught, this thing that I taught in the youth this past Wednesday, the series that we started two weeks ago, uh, lends itself perfectly into what we're talking about here today in Joel. So youth, you've probably heard uh, quite a bit of, of what I'm about to talk about. When we're grasping the text in our town, we're taking these theological principles and we're finding out how to apply them. I think it boils down to two things. One, hear the alarm. And two, respond accordingly. There's so many different types of alarms. I mean, think of your everyday alarm. There's, right, you can set your phone, set it to wake you up. Maybe there's like a little harp that plays or you've got your regular ringtone or it sounds like a car alarm. You know which of those wakes me up? None of them. My alarm is strictly to wake Hillary up, so Hillary wakes me up. And that's just the truth. Nothing wakes me up. Um, quick story. In summer between my 10th and 11th grade year, and I'm sorry, youth, you've heard this. Summer between my 10th and 11th grade year, I went to this thing called Boy State. Um, Boy State is where representatives from all around the state of Alabama uh, are sent to, it was hosted at the University of Alabama when I did it, are sent to the University of Alabama to run like this mock government is the way that Boy State is set up. And before you go, you have to write this essay, and you send the essay, and then over the course of the week, you elect a governor and, and a mayor, and there's all of this just political stuff. It's to get you, uh, as a high schooler, um, to be able to interact with people from across the state uh, and do it in, in a political setting. So I went. I didn't run for anything. Um, but I did write the essay at the beginning. We go through all of Boy State, and the very last day of Boy State is the award day. 
You get a scholarship to the University of Alabama for being elected governor. You get a scholarship for being elected mayor. It's a little bit of less. And so there are scholarships given on this awards day. Um, you get a scholarship for writing the best essay. So on the last day of Boy State, awards day, my alarm goes off in the dorm that I'm staying in. And guess what? I miss it. I don't wake up. I have someone pounding on my door, and it's about 20 minutes after the award ceremony has started. Maybe, maybe, maybe 15. And he says, hey, we overslept. The ceremony has started. I throw on my shoes and I just run across campus. I'm in my pajamas. My hair looks crazy. I think I had planned on showering that morning. I played a basketball game the night before. My hair was a mess. My, I, my breast felt bad because I didn't brush my teeth. I have on my tennis shoes, like probably high top basketball shoes, and my pajamas, which are probably shorts and a t-shirt. And I look like I've just rolled out of bed. And as I sprint into the auditorium where they are uh, giving out the awards, and there are, it's the last day, there are parents there, I think my parents were there, um, there are parents there, there are, uh, all of these representatives are there, there are some principals that have come, there are some state representatives that are there, it's a big deal, and about the second that I bust in from the stage you hear, uh, and the award for the uh, scholarship um, for the essay goes to Austin McNeil. And so there I was, and I walk up there, and I accept it, and I literally look like, it, it, it feels like they had to be going, this is wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we have made a mistake somewhere. But here's the thing, I miss all of that embarrassment if I just hear the alarm. I miss all of that embarrassment if I just wake up when my alarm goes off. There's a book called Aha by Kyle Eidelman. And he gives four ways that God sounds the alarm for us. And I want to go through those real quick. One way that we see it is through God's word at the right time. One way that alarm can sound for us and we can hear and recognize where we are falling short and go, man, I need to repent, is through God's word at the right time. We see it through Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, when they both bring offerings to the Lord, and Cain's is accepted, or Abel's is accepted, and Cain's is not. Cain walks away dejected, and before killing Abel, before Cain kills Abel, the Lord goes to him and says, Cain, if you had just done the right thing, and I'm paraphrasing, if you had just given what you knew you were called to give, it would be okay. And then he says, Sin crouches at your doorstep. He recognizes what Cain is going through. He recognizes what Cain is heading towards. And the word of the Lord meets him, sounds the alarm for him. It's like he's ringing the bell. Cain, if you'd have just done the right thing. Cain, it, I understand that you're fighting this sin at the doorway. Hold off. The word of the Lord meets him in the same way that he speaks to us directly through the Bible. We know Cain ignores the alarm. Cain kills Abel. Another way he does it is through the words of someone in your life. We see that kind of here in Joel. Joel going, hey, um, 
this locust, these locusts that have just happened, if you think they were an alarm, they are. Right, wake up. Right, we see it through people going, hey, um, I've noticed where you've gotten off track. Let's work on reining it back in. You need to repent. Hey, I see where you were falling and faltering. Proverbs, especially in Proverbs chapter 27, tells us a lot about the importance of listening to these, these friends that are giving us advice to get back on the right track. That friend going, hey, listen, man, I see you're struggling. But you can't keep living this way. That should be an alarm. We see it through a taste of future consequence. Again, in Joel. Joel saying, hey, these locusts were bad. Actually, the worst you've ever seen. There's worse coming. This is just a taste of what's to come. It's like when you're texting and driving and get into a fender bender. Right? It's that exactly. It's you going, man, what am I doing? That could have been so much worse. And then it's recognizing that and fixing it. It's that show, who's, whoever has seen the show, Beyond Scared Straight, where they take the little kids and they put them in jail. It's an, it's an awful premise when you say it out loud. But they take these, these kids who are, who are these juveniles, they've been in trouble, and they put them in jail for like a, a week just to go, hey, the road that you're on, it leads here. He does the same with us. We see him doing it here in Joel, where he goes, hey, hey, I just want you to recognize, hear this alarm, the road that you are on, it's leading nowhere you want to be. Recognize it. And we see it through examples of others before us. In 1 John chapter 3, we see a warning against becoming like Cain. We can see it in our families and, and in our friend groups. Right? We can see it where we go, hey, this person did this thing I'm currently doing, and look where they ended up. Right? Hey, I'm in this family, and everyone in my family has always just done the same thing. Now everyone in my family has ended up in jail, but it's just what I'm supposed to do. Right? So I do it. Hey, these friends that I'm hanging around, they just all got in a bunch of trouble for doing this exact thing that I'm doing. I need to recognize and make a change. So there are all these ways that we can hear the alarm, but none of these alarms matters if we don't then do something about it. Hey, I hear it and I recognize it. Hey, I understand that I'm doing something wrong. Hey, I know that, that you're calling out for me to make a change. If we don't then respond accordingly with repentance, then we've missed it. Joel makes that apparent as he talks twice and at length about the importance of repentance. And as far as the repentance goes... We cannot wait until it's too late, right? Because Joel says the day of the Lord is coming, right? Those locusts, they were awful. They were the worst you've ever seen. They'll talk about them for generations. But the day of the Lord is coming. And if you are still standing there on the opposite side, opposed to the will of the Lord, then it is going to be worse for you. You cannot wait until it's too late. You cannot hear the alarm and press snooze and say, I'll wake up in five minutes. So as the band, the worship team comes up, that's what I want you to think about. 
do you have any of these alarms going off that you've just press snoozed on and said, I'll handle that when I get there. And it doesn't have to be a disaster like the locusts in Joel. It could be like a harp alarm. It doesn't have to be this massive thing, but you recognize it. You know that there's an alarm sounding, that you're going, I've got to repent of this, but you're just pressing snooze. You're going, hey, I understand what is being done in my life, and I understand how I've got to do something about it. I understand that that all begins with repentance, but I'm not ready yet. You cannot keep pressing snooze. Because the alarm may be sounding, but the day of the Lord is coming.